0: Welcome uh, to uh, another interview conducted by EFSAS. Uh, by and this time we're interviewing Dr. Matthew Walton uh, on the situation in, uh, in Myanmar. Matthew Walton is an assistant professor in comparative political theory in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. And previously, uh, he was a senior research fellow in modern Burmese studies at the St. Anthony College in, uh, at the University of Oxford. Um, And your research has uh, mainly focused on religion and politics in Southeast Asia, with a special emphasis on Buddhism uh, in Myanmar. And Dr. Walton's first book, Buddhism, Politics and Political Thought in Myanmar, was published in 2016. And you have been uh, uh, contributing uh, through articles on Buddhism, ethnicity, politics and political thought in Myanmar and these have appeared in various international journals and, and other, other publications. Uh, so uh, Dr. Walton, uh, welcome. Thank you so much, Sinead and to EFSAS. It's great to be here. Um, now, well, like, like, like I told you uh, before we started in the beginning is that uh, one of the most you know, obvious questions in which we also like to ask uh, the people we interview is that uh, you are an, uh, an American. Um, And you have, uh, you know, studied Myanmar more than uh, people from South Asia or Myanmar might have done. So what prompted your interest in this particular region in this country?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I have a a somewhat odd academic trajectory anyway, because my... um, First degree was in music composition, and so I had a kind of previous life as a, as a composer and an opera composer um, before, you know, eventually after undergraduate switching more to focus on um, religion and politics, sort of in Asia broadly, and then that that um, you know came down to focus on Myanmar. and And really the reason why is because my first visit to Myanmar. Um, uh almost 20 20 years ago now was um was with a uh, friend and we did a meditation retreat there and so i hesitate to use the word fusion because that you know invokes all these sort of weird images but um so this was a, a retreat at a Burmese monastery where um was mostly non-Burmese people there meditating about a month long and uh, we received uh, what I might call like classical teachings in in vipassana or insight meditation from Burmese monks Um, and then also every other day uh, what we might call a kind of conceptual translation teaching from monks and nuns uh, mostly Americans who had studied in in Burma and Myanmar for years and um so this was, for me, uh, I would describe as a kind of spiritual coming home. Uh, this uh, That's the tradition that I, you know, kind of identify with and practice in now. So there was that kind of interest and foundation. But the other thing that happened was right at the end of this retreat, uh, one of the American um, Americans who had been a monk in Myanmar told us about his, uh, his time in the 90s. And he had studied with... Uh, um, with one of the more prominent um, uh, monks in the country. And so, you know, late 80s, early 90s is when Aung San Suu Kyi was kind of coming into her own in, in Myanmar politics and, you know, spending some time under house arrest and things like that. <clears throat> but really starting to think and write about Buddhism, politics, democracy, you know, all these sorts of things. Uh, and this monk thought, well, you know, yeah, she's Myanmar, but she grew up in, you know, India and Oxford for most of her time. Maybe it makes sense to have this Westerner talk to her about Buddhism. So uh, so then this teacher conveyed to us the kind of conversations that they had, you know, during what I would kind of describe as this period of intellectual ferment for her, right? She's really starting to make those connections uh, in a lot of her writings, you know, this is when we see the freedom from fear and things like that coming up. And so, um, I was just intrigued by this, right? I mean, having, you know, having learned some of the more of the meditation and having known some of the general outlines of Buddhism, right, then I proceeded to kind of see the rest of my time in Myanmar and across Theravada Buddhist Southeast Asia through this lens, right? What are the ways that people are kind of enacting, you know, their Buddhist beliefs or or practices through politics? And that's really what kind of focused me on um, on that path to look at Buddhist political thought and Buddhist politics.
0: Okay. no, we'll, we'll of course come in, 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 in the interview about about you know, your, your study of Buddhism and politics in Myanmar. but to, to just get a little bit of a background from you is that you know that they say that Myanmar is the country with the longest lasting uh, civil war in the world. And um, you know it has now been almost one and a half years since the army, overthrew uh, the uh, democratically elected government of uh, Suu Kyi uh, and and her party, the National League for uh, Democracy. Um, So two things. Um, Why this timing? Why did it happen then when it happened? And why has it been so difficult despite the popular belief, of course, which we also talked about Buddhism being a very, you know, Peaceful, which which eventually all religions uh, claim to be, but Buddhism has this in the West also the um, the perception that it's a very peaceful uh, religion. Why has it some, been so difficult to end civil war in Myanmar, and why why this this overtake by the by the army?
1: Yeah. So yeah. So we'll we'll kind of deal with both of those um, separately here, and maybe I'll add, I'll I'll try to address the kind of. Like ongoing conflict and civil war um, question first, and then we'll come to the more recent coup. So, um, you know, what we call Myanmar today is obviously, you know, this sort of like pieced together country, like many kind of post colonial countries. That doesn't mean it didn't have earlier reference points, um, but, you know, many of the areas that are in it, the kind of uh, what we call the ethnic states. uh were not always are not officially kind of part of an earlier you know Myanmar Bur- Burmese kingdom right they were sometimes vassal states they sometimes had other relationships things like that and so you know british colonization brought things together sometimes in awkward ways but then post-independence also formalized a lot of those relationships um in nation state boundaries right which which created new obligations right created new identities for people and so the the um you know the lead up to um to independence in 1948 was uh, was still a country, um, uh, well, still not yet a country, right? A territory with a number of intersecting and overlapping identities, right? So you had ethnic identities, um, you have religious identities, and you also had a really strong sense of um, uh, of, of class at that time, right? So you had a lot of um, activism from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, looking at kind of like class differences as well. And a lot of these persisted then, you know, through independence, through the 1950s, um, persisted in resistance movements, right? Persisted through um, eventually, you know, kind of independence movements against the state. And um, what a number of scholars have described throughout the 1950s is um, the Myanmar military and the Myanmar uh, or the, sorry, Burmese at that point, military and government early days of independence, barely controlling most of the country, right, really trying to kind of like get order. And as they sort of moved out, um, obviously kind of creating tension uh, with, you know, with uh, ethnic groups that they were in conflict with. But that particularly happened in places on the border, um, in Kachin states and Shan states up north and northeast. Um, And in part, that was because of the proximity of China, and um, concern about nationalists, um, you know, after the PR- creation of the PRC, um, nationalists moving down into the country and the People's Republic kind of coming down in, right, to, uh, to chase them. And so the tactics of the military to try to pacify and, and sort of centralize the country generated even more, right, uh, discontent among ethnic groups. And so what we saw then late 1950s, early 1960s was the eruption of more violence that was met in part with a military coup then in 1962 right and all of and most of those kind of ethnic rebellions at that point that they were mostly ethnic um, uh, then persisted in some form or another, over the next you know 50 years or so. and and you know, so so what we saw then in um you know the 2010s or and in, in the aughts really was um a kind of partial economic transition, right? Away from a sort of socialist, state-led uh, um, uh regime that that really had been enacted kind of poorly. Um, And so Myanmar had, you know, shifted down to least developed country status by the end of the 1980s. Um, So, you know, popular discontent was really pushing the military to do something different, at least economically. And then my sense is that, like, throughout the 2000s they saw other models they I, by this i mean the sort of military leadership they saw models of transition in places like indonesia where you know a military could control a constitution process could control a transition process to still keep a kind of formal role and control over the things that they wanted to and that's what happened with the 2008 constitution is that the military kept control of key ministries right they they put um, uh, clauses in there to say twenty-five percent of the parliaments are going to be appointed by the military, right? And um, so you know they had a pretty, a pretty good situation, right? A pretty um, good situation to maintain control on their terms. Um, the twenty-five percent meant that uh, any constitutional amendment that they didn't like, they could block, right? So you know they could do it on their own terms, really. And I think that's what we saw uh, through the first five years of. what's kind of called the transition as you saw you know a kind of like post-military party the the usdp um led by the Sane, former uh, you know military officer um you know enacting quite a lot of change but change on their own terms that they were you know comfortable with right in 2015 the nld once they were allowed to kind of compete um won in a landslide right and i think that was a little bit destabilizing to the military because they kind of thought, look, we've got our proxy party in here that has been praised for pushing forward these economic and political democratic reforms, yet you're still not voting for us, right? So I think that was a little frustrating. Um, uh, but then, you know, for the NLD to kind of win an overwhelming victory in the 2020 um, uh, election um, was even more, right? Even more problematic. Now, you know, many of us did not actually think, many of us thought that, okay, the military is um, making the same kind of noise that a lot of people are making about elections, right? And election fraud. I think it's really important for us to recognize how much similar discourses in the U.S. and in other places about election fraud um, influenced what the military could do, right? In, in claiming, uh, you know, election abnormalities and things like that. So we heard that, but still, you know, many of us thought, why, why would you get rid of this situation? You still have control, right? It doesn't, in a, in a way, it doesn't matter um, if Aung San Suu Kyi uh, wins, if her party wins, if they have a majority in parliament because the military still controls a lot of these things. Um, but for, for whatever reason, um, uh, uh the, the commander-in-chief, um, uh, didn't like the way that that was moving, right? Wanted maybe more control over this, right? Um, wanted to neutralize some enemies and so implemented the coup um, at that point in, in response with the alleged argument that there were election inconsistencies, although there's no evidence for that.
0: Okay, now before, it, it's very interesting because you went into the history and before I go to the, to the contemporary situation, what strikes me as, again, I've told you that earlier, I'm not the greatest expert on Myanmar, but on the region, what strikes me is that, and maybe you can explain that, um, is that you, Myanmar was part or Burma was part of British India. Uh, and then eventually the British left and a few countries emerged out of this. When you talk about the military having a lot of control, Uh, for example in British India I see the same thing for example in a country like Pakistan and I see the same thing in, in Myanmar and I but I don't see it in a country the biggest chunk of it in India so why is it that these three countries which were all part of British India when the British suddenly left that they because in Pakistan's case you can still explain it probably because uh, apparently the pakistan uh, pakistan inherited much less of the landmass while they inherited much more of the armed forces so there might be explainable how can you explain it in myanmar's case well i think that that probably some of this and this this maybe is not
1: exactly an explanation for myanmar in relation to pakistan but perhaps in relation to india is that You know, we can look at, um, uh, you know, Myanmar's, at at the role of Myanmar, the Myanmar army, right, in the independence struggle as having had a direct role there. And it's a little bit of a confusing kind of flip-flop because, um, you know, the British uh, privileged non-Burmans, so the Burmans are the majority ethnic group in the country, uh, the Brit- British privileged non-Burmans in um, recruiting to their colonial military um, in, in um, Myanmar, and Burma. And um, that was for a few reasons. One, because they didn't want to privilege the majority, but two, because many of the ethnic, uh, other ethnic groups um, had disproportionately converted to Christianity. So there felt like some kind of similar, cultural similarities there. Um, but, uh, but what you had was a weird initial alliance where, the, Burme, where the, the Burman groups allied with the Japanese on one side, so we're kind of talking about early years of World War II, against the British and most of the other ethnic groups, right? um, to drive the British kind of out and, and away to the peripheries. Uh, very quickly, the Burman groups realized that Japanese rule was not all that they expected it to be. And so within about a year, year and a half, they kind of switched sides joining the British surreptitiously to expel the Japanese as part of World War II. Um, So, you know, the the kind of end of World War II and the beginnings of independence were deeply militarized in in Burma at that time. So that's one of the kind of parts of it. But the fact that the Burmans and the non-Burman groups had been fighting on different sides for most of that conflict was kind of papered over, right, in in the sort of push toward independence. And so at that point, the British, I think wanting to hastily get out of there, were happy to just sort of give their imprimatur to um, the Burman side led by Aung San, father of Aung San Suu Kyi and and the kind of father of Burmese independence um, without worrying too much about how they were gonna manage those things. But I think that that made the military primacy uh, you know, that, that created the reputation, right, for the Burmese military in relation to independence, um, and kind of gave that iteration of it control of the country
0: to start. So, so in essence, Burmese independence from British uh, colonialism was more entrenched into a military uh, defeat of the British uh, in comparison to India where it was much more of a nonviolent movement.
1: I, I, th- I think that's one of the big factors talking about how the military plays this prominent role, but also overall the militarization of the country, right? Because if you've got, you know, World War II was fought in a very different way in Burma than it was in, you know, than it was in India, um, and so you had a, a country that was awash in weapons, right, and militarized through throughout many parts of it, right, and destroyed actually through many parts of it.
0: Yeah. Um, you have, of course, you you already inaugural. Uh, senior research uh, uh, Su Chi senior research fellow in modern Burmese uh, studies at uh, at Oxford, and uh, maybe an, uh, a bit of an uncomfortable question, but this is something I have here: is that Suchi, of course, you know, was considered for a long, long time as the you know uh, torchbearer of democracy. She was put in house arrest for a long, long time. Um, yet when the uh, when she came to power, she did defend the uh, army at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Um, the question is, is that just plain realpolitik? Or why would she do that? Because there was at that time, she, you know, to say it that way, she fell from a pedestal for many people. There were, there were people who, who said that her Nobel Prize would should be taken back. So, why do you think that happened?
1: Yeah. So this was, I mean, <clears throat> uh, having this post at Oxford uh, with her name attached to it, um, it, you know, it was kind of a a, a fascinating five years from a moment when she was still kind of in that, um, you know, th- on that pedestal, as you say, this kind of human rights icon to, you know, by the end of it, having gone through all of the Rohingya violence um, w- with, you know, with her either non-responses or responses supporting the military, um, you know, where that became uh, a very different kind of thing to have attached uh, to. You. So I I would have a few thoughts on this. Um, And and nothing in nothing that I'm saying, I am I trying to kind of absolve her. I mean, I deeply disagree with the choices that she made. Um, you know, and I think they were probably influenced to some degree by a kind of personal bias and personal prejudice. And also by you know strategic action, right? And I think one of the things that's important for us, again, not to absolve but to understand and explain, is you know what were the kind of constraints that she and her party were facing, and how did she choose to respond to them as well? So a couple of things with with Don Sansucci, you know, if we look at her work in the late '80s and early '90s, you know, her speeches, her written texts, things like that, we can certainly see. Uh, support for democracy. Right. And in some cases, support for a kind of like liberalism and liberal democratic ideals. My argument um, that I make in the book and and that I've made for a long time is that we also see language that mirrors what we would call the discipline democracy that we associate with the Myanmar military. Now, that's been their kind of that's what the guides the 2008 Constitution. Right. This discipline flourishing democracy. Right. and so. you know, this is maybe an implied idea in liberal democracy, but not something we focus on as much But the idea that like, look, if we're giving you this freedom, you got to use it the right way. And that is that is a very clear component of her political thought way back to the late 80s and 90s. There's also a clear component of what I might call a moral democracy, right, or a kind of Buddhist inflected democracy that intersects with that disciplining, right. So it's kind of like, you know people need to be, uh, you know, citizens need to be good people, making the good choices, right? Making good choices for themselves and for others. And, you know, we gloss that in Western liberal democracies in a lot of different ways, you know, people complain about uneducated voters or whatever it might be, or immoral, you know, valueless voters, Um, you know, but it has a very specific Buddhist inflection for Buddhist moral values and selflessness uh, in Aung San Suu Kyi's work. Now, what also happened around this time was that as her stature was growing among Burmese people because of you know the uh, because of the the, the the bravery and the sacrifices that she and others in her party made throughout the 1990s, um, the camp the global campaign to draw attention to you know her plight and the plight of democracy and political change in in Burma um, was solely highlighting the kind of liberal democratic components of what she did right and that was strategic in a lot of ways we saw academics doing this that's part of what the nobel prize was about right making her into a human rights icon which which was i would say a role and a a title that she embraced at times when it was strategic and useful for her and then subsequently was very happy to say I'm not a human rights icon. I've always been a politician, right? And and I think that in and of itself was a political move for her, right? Um, but the but but what happened then during the 1990s and the 2000s, I think, was that not only was Aung San Suu Kyi largely under house arrest, not only was her party kind of like decimated by the military, right, through arrests and um, all sorts of other legal moves, right? but this really constrained what. The democratic movement could do in the country for almost two decades. Uh, and one of my graduate, one of the graduate students that I work with at Oxford, Richard Rower, um, writes about this, writes about the way in which the kind of authoritarian context in which the NLD kind of was created and, and came of age as a party, also had effects on how they governed themselves, right? How they, uh, you know, what kind of democracy they allowed within their party, and effects on how they governed once they got power, right? And so I think what we saw with Aung San Suu Kyi was somebody who um, really saw the constraints, the constitutional constraints, right? The other political constraints. And she believed that the only way that she was going to make change was through some sort of compromise with the military, right? Now, you know, for for me as a political scientist assessing that, um, I think that's logical, right? That makes sense. Uh, Very few... Yeah, it's it's really difficult to point to democratic transitions uh, that happen against a military as well-equipped and as entrenched as the Myanmar military, right? Most of these are going to be pacted transitions that will move gradually, allowing militaries to keep a little bit of power, you know, to transition out into civilian guys. and I think that's what she was dedicated to. It's not entirely clear that the military was, you know, was willing to kind of do that with her as well, and I think... Again, so once we got to the um, uh, the the violence against the Rohingya in 2016 and 2017, the specific um, you know acts of expulsion that have been labeled by many groups now as genocide, um, uh, you know, she was in a, a bind or saw herself as in a bind, right? She needed to kind of keep pursuing this, you know, if not alliance, at least kind of um, good relationship with the military. Um, now, does that require you to go to the ICJ and defend genocide? I mean, I would say not, right? But um, this is what it's hard for us to parse: the degree to which she felt constrained and obligated to kind of do that um, to salvage, right, the transition to salvage that kind of pacted possibility, um, you know. But but certainly, I think there were aspects of you know a kind of national pride that played into it as well. I think she um did not like the fact that you know she had been praised and lauded by all of the western governments you know when she first got out of house arrest and you know was elected to parliament and then when she got into and into power right and to be in her eyes again be blamed for something that this other institution did right that she didn't have control over i think there was some defensiveness to that Um, but it's you know still inexcusable in my view to have gone and you know and launched a defense of, of genocide along with a whole lot of lies about the rohingya and about the military campaign in there that her administration put forward right so sure, it, so sure. it it was a kind of deserved fall from grace uh, in those respects
0: she basically ended up being more of a politician than a human rights activist.
1: Well, I, you know, she claims she always was, right? Um, and and I think that's true to some degree, right? Um, but, uh, but the, you know, this was a case where she was absolutely, for whatever reason, willing to kind of strategically sacrifice the Rohingya for broader political interests, right? For the transition. Um, and, you know, that's something that one, somebody who is a genuine human rights icon might not be willing to do,
0: right? No, and in in, you, you, in your in your book, you of course, and in your research, you of course also focus a lot on. Now we come to that when we when we talk about the Rohingyas and we talk about religion, like in in, in, in many parts of the world, of course, religion always, in some way, ends up being politicized, uh, political, and then you have you know you have these uh, definitions of you have Islamic terrorism, you have uh, Christian supremacy. Um, but you, you you talk about Buddhist nationalism and those two things. So nationalism and religion seems to be very contradictory. Uh, while in, while, while in your work, you make the case that this is very much entrenched into, into Myanmar. So again, this is a very open question. And then of course we can, we can come to the Rohingya issues because that's also embedded into, into religion. But what exactly is this? religion or Buddhist Buddhist nationalism we talk about in Myanmar.
1: Yeah, so it's a really important question to kind of like um, put them there and I like the way you described it as you know it's it, these are these are you know whatever we might imagine the uh, source of our religion and our religious values to be, um, humans have created them right and we and humans interpret them right And that's just the way that goes. So in my mind, that means that they are inherently kind of political, Constructs, right? That that we don't um, that whatever truth might be there, we as humans are the ones who are arguing over the truth, right? And so, you know, as a scholar, um, I'm always, uh, you know, my my antenna go up when I hear. Claims of like true Buddhism, right? A real Muslim, right? Because, you know, those, those are political claims, right? Um, and, and they might be for good purposes, right? They might be to try to, you know, inculcate peace or something like that, but they are still political claims because they are, it's attempting to kind of define what is truly in a religion and what is not. And so I'm particularly interested in the ways that those things change and especially the ways in which uh, something like Buddhism. Can you know at times and under certain circumstances merge with a kind of national political identity as well, right? Or in the case of Myanmar, a range of national and subnational political identities as well, because we've got all these ethnic groups in Myanmar, some of which are Buddhists, some of which are Christian, a handful of which are Muslim as well, or, or majority Muslim. Um, you know, so so. Th- you know the first kind of thing to say is that there is no kind of inherent buddhist nationalism right what we get in my and in, uh, in my opinion is sets of circumstances that kind of allow somebody to imagine that their buddhism and their their buddhist identity and their national identity kind of either support each other or are you know or are inextricably intertwined right so there's a long history in in um, buddhist polities or buddhist influenced polities of a kind of coexistence right between a religious community like the sangha which is the pali word we use for the group of monks um uh, and you know the king the monarch right whoever whatever the polity so there's a long history of a kind of interaction with there and uh, with between them and you know in in ideal situations those are complementary right the kind of king supports the monks and the monks you know, act as a kind of moral guide on the king. Um, that's usually more ideal than <laughs> than in practice.
0: In every religious, uh...
1: right, exactly, yeah. So, so we've we've you know we've got those relationships that are that are there, um, and and that has become, I think, more complicated in. The sort of modern era, because of the nature, because you know, our political identities and our political communities have become more strictly bounded. Right, nation state boundaries are there. Um, uh, they you know they matter in particular ways, but they don't always map on easily to you know how Buddhists understand their community, right? How Muslims understand their their community as well, and and so you know so for some, right. Um, nation states are kind of anathema to a religious identity, right? A nation state is not what matters for, you know, to some Buddhists, to some Muslims. Um, uh, And, you know, a nation state is just a kind of worldly mundane identity. But for others, they see the nation state as necessary to support the religious uh, community as well, right? And so we see those things coming together, and certainly we, we, we've seen moments of what we might call kind of a Buddhist nationalism um, emerge in Myanmar in the past, right? So we had moments, um, you know, from, from the fall of the last Burmese monarchy in 1890s, um, all the way up to independence in 1948, we saw movements of monks led by monks who were connecting political independence To what i would call a kind of like spiritual liberation right so monks complaining look you know now we've got these heathen british in charge and not only are they going to repress you politically but they're not going to support buddhism and you're not going to be able to you know practice in the right way that you should right so we see those moments of that but a, a a series of particular things i think have enabled this moment right this more recent moment of buddhist nationalism Um, in Myanmar. And and it's important to kind of name some of those in particular ways. One of the more important ones, I think, and one of the ways in which it has pushed a kind of Buddhist nationalism that in the past might have been anti-colonial or something like that, pushed it in an explicitly anti-Muslim way has been what I would call the kind of global war on terror discourse, right? So this is the post 9-11, you know, one that institutionalizes the figure of the Muslim terrorist, right? And, you know, to, to the exclusion of any other possible religious terrorist. And that has had at least two influences on on Buddhists and, and monks in, in Burma. Um, one is that it's, it's sort of influenced their thinking, right? Like they are then more inclined if they see, you know, the discourse from the West, if they see news, right? Um, uh, more inclined to kind of make those connections between Islam and terrorism, between Muslims and terrorism. And frankly, we, we've done some uh, research groups of mine have done some little informal studies where we've just tried to look at Burmese language newspapers, um, You know, take a, a week or two looking at them, looking at the international news, right? We have never once found a positive story about Muslims or Muslim majority countries right? Does that make that, you know, so, so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of bias in the media that we know exists. I mean, this is why Al Jazeera and other networks are founded, but every day, nobody, you know, who's reading Myanmar uh, media is getting a kind of positive image. And the only images they're getting are related to terrorism or violence or something like that. But then once these campaigns started, in 2010, 2011, there's a kind of international justification, right? These monks can then point to, you know, U.S. presidents and, you know, campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places um, against Islamic terrorism, right? And, and they can point to that to try to frame a threat internally in Myanmar. So that that global war on terror discourse was a really important component of what enabled this this present moment. The other kind of component of it is is what I call the uncertainty of the transition, right? So I don't particularly like the arguments about political transition in Myanmar that that, that imply that somehow military rule was good because it was brutal and repressive enough to keep people from fighting among each other, right? Um, you know, I think often this is how, like, you know, the um, uh, regimes in Pakistan have, you know, um, uh, justified, right, some of their um, uh, some of their policies, but also pushing back against democracy as well. We see this in Myanmar too. I don't agree with those arguments, um, but what the democratic transition did, as all democratic transitions do, it introduced uncertainty right? Political uncertainty, the networks of patronage, you know, the kind of positions that people had built up, whether you're a monk or a business person or a soldier, um, you know, those things shifted in a way that you couldn't predict, right? The next election, that's, that's what's beautiful about democracy. But that was terrifying to a lot of entrenched kind of power interests, right? And what, go- what, what goes along with that, um, you know, as Myanmar has been let's call it opening up, although I don't really like that that phrase, but as it's been opening up kind of culturally, technologically, everything like that, there's this real, um, you know, anxiety about what sort of modernity writ large is gonna do to Buddhism, right? You know, kids these days, this this is the like kids these days argument, right? Short skirts are too short, kids are going online to look at pornography, you know, whatever these arguments are. They add to a general anxiety, but nobody can point to like modernity as the culprit, right? You need a culprit that you can name, that you can blame, that is the threat to your religion. And that's where these things combined, a kind of anxiety and uncertainty about political and social transitions. But then an easy narrative to fall back on to say, you know, these Muslim populations are the real threats to, you know, to Buddhism. And so that's what has enabled, I think, the particular, you know, kind of language of um, Buddhist nationalism now. There's one other thing I want to say with that. So we look at a lot of these movements, um, had a research project looking at the main one, Mabatha, um, you know, for for, uh, several years. And what I think is important is for us to understand that a group like Mabatha Um, which was formed in 2013 and was was kind of really powerful through 2014 and 15, and then kind of dropped off in its influence after the NLD came into power. Um, uh, The way I like to describe it is that for decades, um, there hadn't been a kind of religious political discourse in Myanmar, right? People hadn't really been connecting Buddhist ideas and political ideas. And when Mabatha came in and said, You know that we need to protect our religion and our nation right and our people and link them together it kind of took up all the air in the room right it became the dominant discourse for that and it was really hard for other articulations of like buddhism in the transition to come out but we saw a lot of them right for all of for every anti-muslim action Right? for every anti-Muslim like article or sermon or speech, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of Buddhists, of instances of Buddhists, you know, supporting their religion in peaceful ways, right? living peacefully with their neighbors, trying to figure out you know, how they could protect Buddhism in a time of uncertainty, and also you know, live peacefully with others. So I think it's important for us to recognize that like, you know, the anti-Muslim Buddhist nationalism was really important and really destructive but it was only a particular kind of stream of this movement, right? And that took up a lot of the air in the room.
0: But, but there have been like, you know, like they were at the ICJ, uh, people have called about, uh, people say that it's uh, ethnic cleansing has been happening in, in Myanmar, they call it genocide, yep. uh, you know, and you know, not not by getting into a debate on the definitions of genocide and ethnic cleansing, I know those, are, those can get complicated, but, how do you view it? Was it of such an extent that, even colloquially speaking, we could talk about ethnic cleansing and genocide? Absolutely, against the Rohingya, absolutely.
1: There's no question about that. Um, I, you know, I certainly, I, you know, I think that a lot of groups were slow to come to that, um, you know, that language and that description. Um, and you're right; there is a lot of politics around how and when we name genocide as such. Um, but it, but it absolutely was. I mean, you know, if we and and. And so what, you know, what happened with the Rohingya coincided with this, you know, this particularly virulent strain of Buddhist nationalism, right? But it was also kind of embedded in several other processes that are, that, you know, that are happening. So number one is very specifically, you know, sort of inserted into what I described before, the kind of global war on terror discourse, right? So, um, so Rohingya had been, um, you know, kind of persecuted and oppressed for, for, for a long time in Myanmar, but more in more isolated ways, let's say, right? Um, uh, but, but with the kind of sudden appearance, right, in, um, you know, in 2016 of uh, an allegedly Islamic, uh, you know, um, kind of group defending the, the Rohingya, um, that, provided, uh, you know, a kind of full justification for, you know, extensive military action, right? So that's that's one kind of component that's going on there. That's what enables, you know, in part the level of violence, enables and justifies the level of violence. But you've also got kind of like um, land politics and, and electoral politics happening as well. So, you know, Rakhine State uh, in the West that borders um, Bangladesh uh, had a population um, largely just, um, distributed between the ethnic Rakhine who are also Buddhists and, um, you know, ethnic Rohingya who are predominantly Muslims. And it, you know, prior to, um, you know, the violence in 2016, 2017, um, Rakhines were more, you know, somewhere over 50%. Rakhines were the larger population. Um, Rohingya were still a sizable part of that population. And, um, And so what what you kind of had emerging from there uh, over the last 50 years was an increasing kind of separation between the communities. So prior to independence in 1948 and in the years following independence, there was violence between Rohingya and Rakhine communities there. And what happened was a more integrated population kind of, you know, split apart, right? So you had more Rohingya communities moving to and living in the Northwest and more Rakhine living in the Southern and and Eastern part of of the state, right? And that has then in Myanmar's new political environment created um, the possibility for kind of like reasonable narratives about secession, even though there are virtually no Rohingya talking about secession, right? Um, But Myanmar's constitution provides for representation by, you know, minority ethnic groups of a particular population. Um, and so this has been part of what people can say about to, to justify violence against the Rohingya to say, you know, we're scared because they're going to try to secede. They're going to try to join Bangladesh. They're going to make a stronger, you know, um, Islamic state on our border, uh, you know Islamic country on our border, right? There's no calls for independence or secession among the Rohingya, right? Um, but it's, it's those kind of like geopolitical and demographic components that, you know, create a sort of perfect storm that allows for this kind of violence there. The other component that's there is also, um, to be frank, a kind of racialized component, right? So um, uh, there are ways in which uh, you, the, the language on race um, and ethnicity in Burmese is not always clear. There are languages, there's, there's words that we use to kind of, um, that, that seem to mean race and ethnicity and nationality all at once. Um, but there is a perception that Rohingya are darker skinned South Asians, right? Um, and so there is a kind of racial component to that as well, where, um, you know, where people have been or Rohingya communities, and even darker skinned um, other groups in Myanmar have been, um, you know, subjected to violence, just because of that perception, right, um, of the way in which that marks on to, you know, race, skin color marks on to uh, not only ideas of religion and religious identity, but to ideas of foreigner, right, um, somebody who doesn't belong here in this country. So you've got all those things happening.
0: But, but but this has of course also has it had its uh, you know blowback in the sense that now you have ethnically armed organizations who who are fighting this and, and where where do you see them standing do do they make a chance is how how is how are they gonna pursue this what is going to happen to them
1: yeah so so it's a great question I mean some of them uh, as you know as we talked about earlier on have been fighting essentially since um you know before independence and right after independence um so this is decades in the making you know over the last 20 25 years most of the ethnic armed groups have um have shifted their expectations and their demands from independence or secession to participation in a more federal type of government right um and there was a really frustrating dynamic that was happening after the transition, where a lot of you know foreign advisors and and um, observers would say, "Yeah, the ethnic groups are you know calling for this, but when we say federalism, they don't know what they mean, right? They don't know what they what they want." And um, uh, know in a lot of cases that wasn't actually true right some of these groups had been developing very sophisticated you know models of what it was that they wanted but in other cases of course what they wanted was like some sort of recognition and respect and autonomy within you know some degrees of autonomy within um the country and we see that as a part of as an essential part of federalism you know in almost every every space now they've known that the only way that they're gonna get that is to sort of maintain the threat of arms, right? I mean, that's, that is that uh, is unfortunately one of the only languages that the Burmese military speaks. And so, um, you know, most of them have kept their arm movements at the same time, creating very um, uh, effective, Uh, governing infrastructures, right? So the the Karen, um, which which is an ethnic group uh, kind of on on the Eastern, um, you know, uh, part of Myanmar, but also spread out across other states, you know, have have developed, um, you know, forestry ministries and education ministries and their own curricula that they're teaching, right? And health ministries and all these things to the to the point that there have been times uh, in the past when people living in Yangon would travel to the border because they'd get better healthcare there they get better services there right so there's a level of competence that has been there and and that a lot of these ethnic groups have been you know showing that they are administrative groups as well right that they can govern themselves and and that they're um, you know that that really they're ready, right, to be part of a federal system as long as they're being um, respected. Now, one of the interesting things that that's happened, so we can we can look at the coup um, last year and and uh, and what's happened in the last year year plus a little bit in comparison with what happened after 1988 and 1990, right? So 1988 was the big um, protests and mm-hmm. strikes, um, and then 1990 was when uh, the military led government had called for an election, um, but then uh, didn't really honor the results. And so there were protests again. Um, And after both those periods, a number of like students and political uh, leaders fled to out of the cities into, um, uh, into the ethnic states on the border. Some of them joined these armed movements and we've seen the same thing happening today or for the last year as well. One of the biggest differences though, is that you know when you talk to um, ethnic uh, you know ethnic armed uh, groups and their soldiers from the 1980s and 90s, you get a sense that like there was still um, so what they would maybe call a kind of Burman supremacy, right? Burman Buddhist supremacy kind of idea, like you know that the that the Burmans were the real Myanmar people. And and these these were like ethnic younger brothers and sisters kind of thing. You 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 get a lot of that in the narrative, right? And as a result, a lot of those like coalitions didn't really last very long. And and they were once they moved out to you know the kind of um, jungles and forest areas, you know they didn't have an effect on domestic politics in the big cities. This is now a very different dynamic today, right? So not only do we have people moving out there, you have. A kind of a really strong discourse of respect for the ethnic groups that have been fighting for a long time and a public self-critique from Burman Buddhists. Many of them were, you know, talking about on on Facebook and other social media saying, I'm sorry that I didn't recognize these dynamics earlier. I'm sorry that we didn't really see, you know, how you were being treated and commitments to doing something differently, right, commitments of, of, of respect and commitments to a kind of different type of federal system in the future. And that's complemented then by these um, PDFs, these People's Defense Forces, right, which are not only burman led right, but they are um, uh, popping up in all sorts of places where the ethnic armed groups aren't, right? To continue the struggle in other places. You've got urban kind of guerrilla warfare happening with other groups in the cities. And so you get a real sus- sustained sense of, you know, a greater degree of solidarity than you, than you saw, you know, 30 years.
0: Ago. That, that's of course, you know, that, that, that's one of the questions I also had that whether this will end up bringing some people together, probably socially it will, um, but on the other hand, you just said that you know the Burmese army is uh, the only language they speak or understand is of course uh, the language of the gun. And militarily speaking, these ethnically armed groups, how, what chance do they make against the Burmese army? Because uh, and that was the, the 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 foreign relations of the Burmese army because the Burmese army is supported but allegedly supported by the Chinese. Um, you know, when, he, when you were talking about the Rohingyas, it also reminded me a little bit about the plight of the Uyghur Muslims uh, in, in Xinjiang. So militarily, probably they don't make a chance and maybe a social change can erupt uh, bottom-up, but what role does the does, does China play in this, in, in this conundrum? Uh, especially when it also the coup happened. Uh, I remember that famous line of, I think it was a foreign minister saying that they have taken note of a small uh, cabinet reshuffle in, in Myanmar. <laughs> how, how do you see China, which is not the obvious democratic uh, you know country in the region, how do you see them uh, playing a role here?
1: Yeah, so so before I get to China, I just want to address the kind of like the military question there, right? So, you know, for for decades, many of these armed groups, while never reaching the yeah, you know, the the, the numbers or you know the level of being armed as 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 the as the Burmese military, um, you know, have effectively fought them to you know a stalemate in many in many situations and have often you know, driven them out of territory, right? So this is, this is an unequal battle, but one in which um, the arms that the Burmese military has had haven't always made up for, you know, their lack of training or the, uh, or, or the fact that they treat their, their soldiers terribly, right? I mean, they are, this is, this is a network of indebtedness, right? And, um, and uh, an obligation that, that Creates more hatred when they send soldiers out to places because they don't pay their soldiers enough, and so soldiers go and confiscate food from people, you know, local people in order to live. So you know they're generating a lot of hostility in, in doing that, and and in part that's what's allowed some of these ethnic armed groups to you know to survive and even you know um, win uh, some of these some of these battles, um, but they are not getting that sufficient support to beat the military now, right? I mean, this is a kind of sustained like guerrilla sort of battle in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, pretty much no Western country has, uh, has been willing to kind of arm these groups. Obviously the situation is different politically than it is, is in Ukraine, right? But the, you know, the relative openness to support a resistance movement uh, in Ukraine against Russian invasion, you know, we haven't seen any of that. And frankly, the, the, you know, the national unity government, the sort of shadow government that's formed representing um, uh, the people who are resisting and the PDF groups are basically crowdfunding. I mean, this is, you know, this is a resistance that couldn't have happened you know, 10 years ago without the sort of infrastructure that we have to do that, but they are fighting, right? And there is, there is for so many people a kind of, uh, you know, a sense of no return, right? That, that whatever compromises seemed possible over the 1990s, 2000s, 2010s are, are done, right? Those seem to be obliterated by it, And that's the, the sense from a larger group here. So then we get to China. Um, And it is absolutely, you know, the case that China has been a strong support for uh, Myanmar in a variety of different ways. So in terms of military support, in terms of cover at the UN and in in other kinds of international bodies for that, China is also a huge investor in Myanmar as well. Uh, It's a little complicated because a few of the ethnic armed groups up along the border in Kachin and Shan states are also, you know, are kind of more ethnically closer to China uh, and and getting arms from China as well. So that's always been a kind of balance that the Chinese government in its national and then provincial forms has always had to navigate, right? So um, uh, the United Wa State Army, for example, um, is the only entity that, you know, seems kind of, um, Able, able to stand up to the Myanmar military in terms of its firepower and things like that. And it has close relations with China too. The interesting thing that's, that's happening here is that although, um, you know, Myanmar is still getting kind of, uh, the, the Myanmar coup government is still getting support from China. Um, <clears throat> the, my sense is that the Chinese government wants predictability right, they want stability. And so, you know, for decades, supporting a Myanmar military government gets them stability, it gets them access. That's great, that's the obvious choice, right? A year and a half of instability in Myanmar, of unpredictability, right? it's not to their benefit, it's certainly not to the benefit of any of the Chinese companies that have a lot invested in, you know, in, in the Myanmar economy and in different sectors and things like that. And so, um, I, I, you know, I think that might be one reason why we've seen support, but, you know, maybe kind of more tepid support than you might expect, um, precisely because, I, you know, I think um, the Chinese government has an interest in getting to stability sooner rather than later. Right. And even prior to the coup, um, we saw some interesting dynamics where, um, you know, you sort of uh, felt in the first five years of the transition that the USDP government, which was the kind of military proxy party, was um, more of the group that was opening up to Western uh, investment and, you know, to better relationships with countries in the West in part because there seemed to be a sense of like um, skepticism and worry from military leaders of an over-reliance on China, right? overdependence on China. Um, and, and what you saw then when the National League for Democracy with Aung San Suu Kyi was in power from 2015 to 2020 was her reaching out to China, forming closer relations uh, with China, again, you know, partly because that's how she saw, um, uh, you know, Myanmar's sort of regional economic future um, moving, but also partly to have an independent relationship with them that wasn't uh, facilitated through the military. Right. So, you know, the the, the Chinese government, I think, has been um, pretty smart at at maintaining these relationships with with all the sides. Um, I would be shocked if they weren't if if. People connected to the Chinese government weren't also having conversations with the National Unity Government and with, the, you know, the shadow government, and you know, maybe not supplying arms, but still trying to maintain those relationships just to keep things things open. But the the, the fact of the matter is that even minimal support from a country like China, a country like um, Russia, and even regional partners like Thailand um, is more than enough to keep the Myanmar military government going. Right. I mean, it's crippled, but it is it is still functional.
0: There was. Um, hasn't it, you know, uh, there, there have been scholars who are saying that, you know, Chinese involvement in the region and maybe, you know, maybe that's also the reason that at some point of time, people in Myanmar were looking not to be over reliant on China. But you have seen Chinese uh, influence in Sri Lanka and where the country is heading now. Uh, You see that, uh, for example, also in in Pakistan, where a lot of investment of China is and where there is also an economic crisis. Uh, And you see that in Myanmar as well. Is there some kind of, uh, do you feel, is there some kind of regional acceptance or acknowledgement of the fact that this over-reliance on China is actually more hurtful than it benefits them?
1: Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I think that's a really difficult calculation for all the people who are involved, right? I mean, the, the you know the um, the political figures and others, um, because there are certainly moments of you know kind of what we might call xenophobic or or at least in this case anti Chinese kind of like economic nationalism, right? So, um, you, uh, one of the really prominent ones was uh, in the early years of the transition when the president, um, to everyone's shock, uh, put a pause on. The very controversial zone Dam project uh, in Kachin State that was Chinese funded, um, and this this you know was a surprise because nobody expected the sort of military um, uh, proxy party to do that, um, and the Chinese government reacted you know uh, as affronted you know for all this. But in my estimation, really what happened was that project was the kind of sacrificial lamb to show, you know, we're listening to people, we're not just going to let, you know, this foreign country take over, um, that allowed dozens of other major infrastructural uh, and investment projects to kind of move forward, largely unaddressed, right, in the rest of the country. So I think that local leaders have tried to maneuver and find ways to, you know, appease Anti-Chinese worry, or you know, kind of this nationalist sentiment, while also recognizing that there probably isn't really much of another option for them in terms of, um, uh, you know, in terms of rapid investment and economic um, development for that. But I, I mean, the
0: you know, there's a way in which, um, <clears throat> but in essence, you know, doesn't it doesn't it end up? Isn't isn't Myanmar, you know, again colloquially speaking, basically now that the army is ruling there as well, a, a modern-day colony of China—a a kind of
1: client state for that, or colony. I mean, I you know, the, the the Myanmar military has a long history of really trying to avoid that, right? I mean, from you know, from from the 1950s, this was one of the things that motivated um, a lot of their tactics. Tactics was to not you know be overtaken in the north by China, and so I, I think that. Um, know their desire for external support is really um mediated by you know that desire to remain independent there and so i think they that you know many of these countries are kind of doing everything they can to avoid fully becoming kind of client states right but but knowing that some degree of dependence um you know on on this this state is 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 necessary and you know the dynamics of that changed after 2016-2017 because you know you saw uh, investment in Myanmar from you know 2010 to 2017 really diversifying right you had a lot of of, um, companies from different countries coming in a lot of different projects and then you know as a response um, to uh, the Rohingya genocide many of those countries pulled out their, you know, their monetary support or lessened it. Um, a lot of companies uh, you know, from other places started to rethink that as well. So you know, post-2017, the pendulum swung the other way and a country like Myanmar had fewer options to go, right? So they had to become more um, dependent in that way. But I think Myanmar, Myanmar's leaders have always looked also to regional blocks like ASEAN Right, because investment from you know Thailand and Singapore and other countries is is, is still really high, um, as as a way of kind of counterbalancing you know the the Chinese influence there.
0: But and we we we're getting to ASEAN as well. Uh, so you know, to sum you, uh, it is quite clear that you know while the different parties in Myanmar try to not become a fool, uh, client state of China, uh, currently with the military uh, in, in Myanmar, it, it, it basically is, it is a vessel state of, of China. And now you're talking about other options. Well, one of the options is, of course, ASEAN. And how, what role should they play? Because I know that they didn't invite them for the last uh, meeting they had. There were talks going on about expelling Myanmar. So what role does could that act as a counterbalance to this Chinese influence or is that too small yeah so in terms of investment
1: um, and and balancing investment yes right I mean Thailand remains one of the major trading partners right and investors in Myanmar um, and other regional ASEAN uh, countries are high up on that list as well so in terms of direct investment yes that is a balancing thing but in terms of of uh, you know, of of politics. I mean, I think um, our expectation, our expectations of ASEAN uh, need to be pretty low. And I think ASEAN has proved itself, you know, um, to be very capable of kind of regional integration, right? But not necessarily of. Um, effective response to domestic political crises, because ASEAN is guided by this famous non-interference principle, right, which which is, you know, partly, um, you know, I think partly it is a, it's a a tactic so that the different countries can maintain access to each other, right, you actually hear this a lot in ASEAN representatives' um, language about being able to go, you know, we're the only ones who can go in and talk to the to the generals, right? You know, and these other states don't have access. So we need to keep that access. And in order to keep it, we can't be too critical, right? And then the other one is the kind of like self-defense uh, argument, which is to say, we're not gonna get any skeletons in your closet because we don't want you to do it, you know, to us next year when we start repressing X minority group in our country. And so, you know, there was talk about this. There was, there's, uh, I think, Um, certain leaders in ASEAN, uh, Malaysian uh, leaders in particular, were very vocal and very critical after the Rohingya um, crisis in 2016, 2017. We saw a few individual leaders be critical after the coup as well. Um, And ASEAN leaders, I think, have always kind of played with like, Let's try to do the bare minimum. Um, as you as you said, there that, you know there were some disinvitations or uninvitations, but those were papered over through kind of bureaucratic language. That wasn't a you're not invited because you are, you know, gunning down civilians on the street. And ASEAN this week is having a defense minister's uh, meeting where the Myanmar defense minister is there, right? So I don't think that ASEAN is gonna be a kind of political for a force for political change in there, Um, but it remains crucial for Myanmar to have the access, um, you know, to them for those, for economic reasons.
0: As long as they are not gonna be a political change and China is supporting the, the military, there wouldn't be a change there.
1: No, and I think that's, and, and that's what's scary about this situation. Um, you know, on the one hand, it is deeply inspiring, right? To have watched so many people, you know, kind of stand up and take risks and, and sacrifice so much for, you know, these, uh, you know, kind of dreams, whether they're democratic dreams or dreams of kind of peace and coexistence um, uh, to, to do that. But it is really hard you know, in history, as I said before, we don't have a lot of these, um, uh, we don't have a lot of examples of, you know, domestic resistance movements that are relatively poorly armed, um, you know, defeating a military without some sort of, you know, exogenous shock or without, you know, support from, you um, uh, you know, from external actors. And we don't really see that right now. So it's hard to see anything other than this kind of status quo, which is destructive for so many people.
0: But is, isn't, uh, you know, I, I get that. And I, and I find it also, you know, of course, a lot of it is politics. But one could say that, you know, why support the Ukrainian uh, people uh, fighting the Russians uh, and and not do that uh, with, with, with the organizations in Myanmar? But don't you think that one of the reasons of that is also because then you're actually getting into a conflict with China.
1: Absolutely, I mean, you know, so I have no doubt that that is one of the big factors that has prevented, you know, countries like the US or the UK or others from taking a more kind of like active, visible role, right? Um, I mean, let's not forget that, you know, there's no proxy conflict with Russia in Ukraine. You know, there is a much more direct conflict there, which is which I think has, um, you know, had an effect on the ways in which, um, you know, the U.S. and other European countries have supported Ukraine. Right. But they have, you know, found ways to do that. I think there's also the fact that, that what we're talking about in Ukraine is a foreign invasion. Right. Um, versus a kind of civil conflict and a coup. And, and I think. When it comes down to it, you know, most of the countries in the UN, no matter how they might uh, be critical of the Myanmar military, are unwilling, in most situations, um, to, uh, to you know, to kind of violate norms of sovereignty there, right? I mean, the, the you know, the Ukrainian conflict is many, responding to a norm of sovereignty. We have right?
0: many American governments trying to overthrow even democratically elected governments in. Kind right. Of- <clears throat> So that's the other thing, right? That, that's exactly where I was gonna
1: go, which is to say, un, unwilling to do that unless there is a kind of clear right. strategic or economic kind of imperative. And Myanmar offers none of that really, right? I mean, there's, there's no upside to it. And that is the sad kind of geostrategic truth. Um, th- there, is no kind of re- there was every reason for you know, the Obama administration to kind of open its arms to the transition and to work with them. But, um, but, but, you know, every geostrategic reason not to get more involved with that. And, and unfortunately, despite, as you say correctly, a history of the U.S. and Western countries getting involved uh, in deeply destructive ways, picking sides in domestic conflicts, they're, they're unlikely to do it in this. And, and, and,
0: and, and one of the biggest factors on top of that is that is almost getting into a conflict or an open conflict. With with the Chinese side, of course.
1: Yeah, it, it, it definitely risks that, right? Um, and and certainly there are many other parts of Southeast Asia where uh, the U.S. in particular is all but in a kind of open conflict with uh, you know with China and South China Sea, um, you know, kind of like dominance and jockeying. And and I don't think they want to risk, uh, at, you know, something where, where the stakes, you know, for them are are
0: so low. So the, the, the geostrategic position of uh, say a Taiwan would uh, justify for in the US perspective to get involved, but the position of Myanmar wouldn't.
1: No, and I think, you know, there's there's, there's certainly a history with Taiwan obviously, um, but we've even seen, you know, a, uh, what I would say is a kind of, um, you know, the US government making every effort not to push, you know, that commitment to defend Taiwan all the way up to the edge, right? Um, and so they're, they're, I think they're trying to avoid a direct conflict with China in every one of those ways.
0: No, um, we're actually coming to the end of the of the interview, uh, and I have just one 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 end question uh, for you, and that is uh, two ways: is that you, in many ways, you've you, you've described how the situation is now, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't make me optimistic about the future, at least in, in democratic terms. Uh, and but but you also talked about as uh, z- z- a little bit of hope where you see some social changes on the ground. So what, what are we looking at in Myanmar in, let's say, five years? Is it, will, will, will this military rule actually bring those people very much together? And could they, could there be a miracle? Or is this going to continue and at some point of time it will disperse and the military will take, still be there? Right. Yeah. So it's it's um I, I like the way that you put that question
1: and and I'm and I'm really glad that you kind of picked up on the the you know the kind of yes, we've got this entrenched military, but in the response we have not only kind of like the the generation of solidarity, right? A stronger solidarity than we've seen, but also you know, really strong impulses for social change, right? And I think that that um and that's kind of where I want to start with this is is because we have seen so much of that, right? I mean, so much of the kind of public face of a lot of these movements is young people who are in really, I think, productive ways, you know, questioning, you know, tradition or, or um, you know, received norms, things like that. So, you know, pushing back and men and women pushing back against gender norms in the midst of conflict to say, look, you know, what we've been repressed or we've been repressing our sisters and mothers and daughters in these ways. And we need, to, you know, this is a moment while we are fighting for our lives to be doing so in a way that like creates an alternative kind of um, social arrangement, right? And so we see this, sometimes the older generations of politicians are dragged kicking and screaming towards this. So the national unity government, the shadow government, is has some folks who have been, you know, elected to, to positions uh, from the NLD and from other parties. It also has a lot of activists and a lot of different kind of political and social figures. It's incredibly diverse, um, ethnically, gender wise, um, religiously, right? Um, but, but in some ways it has had to be pushed into certain positions, right? So the, the NUG statement on the Rohingya was um, more than any Burmese political group has ever done, um, mm-hmm. but also was the result of a lot of lobbying, a lot of listening, right? A lot of arguing about these sorts of things, right? And, and you know, in a way that is inspiring, right? To see those, um, you know, even those old-school politicians realizing, you know, the winds have changed and this is the way that, like, the people are going to go now. Um, that, also suggests that there is no easy end to this conflict right that you have people who are now um, uh, irrevocably alienated right I mean you know when you're when you're fighting in the streets um, for months and months at a time there is no easy way to go back right whether you are somebody who's who's you know resisting the government in the streets or whether as we've recently seen um, in an article that I think was from uh, um, uh, Radio Free Asia, uh, that looked, that had cap, they had found a um, Burmese army soldiers discarded cell phone that had a whole bunch of pictures and videos and things like that of him and his comrades speaking really glibly about the people that they had killed and how they had done that, right? So they don't come back from that easily either, right? And so it's really hard to see what the resolution is for that. But what, what we do see is a commitment among the wide range of groups in the resistance to kind of building something separate, building something parallel, not letting the, you know, um, decades of ethnic armed groups be hierarchies in these kind of gendered ways or hierarchies in these religious ways to really push everybody to be kind of, you know, mounting the resistance Mm -hmm. um, in other ways. That solidarity and that sense of we're not going back suggests that this is just gonna be a really awful protracted conflict. I think it is very um, unlikely that if the Myanmar military holds elections in 2023 or something like that, there's gonna be a lot of people who don't participate. There already are people opting out of the education system, right? The kids who got enrolled in in the kind of military run schools, the junta schools, the numbers have dropped precipitously because people are educating their kids outside of that, right? And people are, you know, creating these kind of parallel spaces. So that optimism that I have is also the reason why I think there's pessimism about, you know, this resolving in some way. Because all of the kind of pacted versions that we see in the region in history are not going to be an option here for a while. People are still too angry, and and you know, the fighting has been um, way too much. So I think. For the next couple of years, very sadly, unless something um, unexpected happens, right? In terms of uh, you know support, um, you know, for, for the opposition, in some ways, uh, that we're likely to kind of see this protracted conflict. Um, uh, and the the only real hope, or the big hope, is that uh, the people who are resisting can sustain kind of these societal cultural change that they're doing, that they're leading there, um, so that what comes out on the other end is not a repetition. Of what's happened in the past but of something that reflects a kind of you know new set of social relationships there
0: and now of course you know even if there is outside of sport it's still prolonging conflict it will. Uh, yeah so, so unfortunately in the coming years um hello yeah Jimmy? oh sorry So, unfortunately, I I just got, uh, I think something happened with the account. Um, So, unfortunately, in the coming years, probably, we might still end up uh, of having the military government in power. And even if things would change, like you said, with an election coming up, maybe, uh, they would still remain in power with, uh, with their proxies
1: yeah in power with their proxies with a large portion of the population you know either choosing not to participate or actively resisting right um you know which will will make at least kind of two (laughs) you know two governments and and two communities um in the country there
0: dr walton uh thank you very much for 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 this interview and uh, i'm uh unfortunately can't end on a better note uh, but that's, that's also the reality. And I do hope what you've said that indeed, you know, it, it reminds me in some ways a little bit about things which happened in South Africa. At some point of time, the people among themselves uh, realized, and then, of course, they, they had this uh, commission of truth and reconciliation. Maybe that is something in the long run, in the very f- long future, which is something which Myanmar also might need.
1: I mean, I, I, I think people are talking about that. People are, it's, it's what's inspiring also is that people are talking about things like trauma. People are talking, you know, and, and and like the trauma of going through not just the conflict of the last year, but decades, you know, in the past, talking about the trauma of having been in the military, right? What it takes to, you know, be fighting against your fellow citizens in those ways. And I think, you know, many of them, many of my colleagues look at, you know, truth and reconciliation commissions. They look at political change like South Africa, but they also know, the weaknesses of those transitions, right? They know the ways in which, you know, the ANC very quickly became an entrenched hierarchical party um, in, and in which, you know, kind of racial discrimination persists. And, you know, they wanna learn from those and they want to change and do better for whatever emerges in Myanmar. So I'm, I am, you know, that, that is the hopeful note that I choose to kind of focus on, even though we know that, that uh, the short-term result is likely to be uh, increased, you know, or, or
0: ongoing fighting and violence. Thank you very much for joining us again and for making time for us. And uh, hopefully uh, when things get a bit better off or if there are a few changes and you also uh, suggested to us to maybe get in touch with some of these people who are actually in the shadow government. So uh, hopefully we can do this uh, soon again on Myanmar, but then uh, maybe with a better outlook or a more positive outlook. Yeah, no, I think that would be be great.
1: And I think a lot of the people in Myanmar are are happy to kind of talk about their experiences and their perspectives. And I think that would be great for for the folks who are watching your videos as well. So
0: Thank you very much. Thanks, Janine. Bye bye.